It's just great to be with you guys today. I hope you had a, did you have a good Valentine's weekend? Pretty good? No? Eh. I, our, ours was, uh, we, we were talking about this, about the fact that I think the last several years, we've just had a lot going on, because this has been the first time for a while that I felt like we, we kind of were able to come up for air enough to do something. Um, thankfully, we were able to, because I'd been, I know I talked about sickness last week, and then I left here, and it hit me, and I've been down most of the week, but um, by the end of it, um, I've, I've gotten back to where I need to be and felt, have felt good. So we, uh, we had a good weekend, um, not as good as Adam. Adam got to hang out with Vanilla Ice on, uh, on Thursday of this week, and so, I mean, whatever Valentine's Day you had, it wasn't that. And so you just, you know, you'll have to compare it to off of Adams because that just sounded like uh, it was unforgettable. So anyway, today we're going to talk about, we are going to talk a little bit about the subject of love. <laughs> He'll show you his moves after the service. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about love and we're going to specifically, we're going to dig into the, uh, the subject of affection versus intimacy. Affection versus intimacy, and we're going to be looking at the book of Luke and a story out of the book of Luke in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip to that. Um, I'll be referencing this story. In Luke chapter 7, we read about two people who encounter Jesus uh, on very different paths. Okay, there's a, there's a story in this chapter about how Jesus is invited to eat a meal with Simon the Pharisee. And Pharisees, uh, if you remember, Pharisees are the, are the teachers of the law. They're the ones that know the law inside and out, backwards and forwards. They're the ones that if you're having some sort of a, a scripture competition or you're playing a Bible game like, I don't know, Bible Trivial Pursuit or Godopoly or what are those? Those those are real games, uh, by the way. Bible baseball, remember Bible baseball? Yeah, whatever the Bible game is, they're the ones that you wanted on your team because they knew a lot about God. But as we discover, they knew a lot about Him, but they didn't know Him. Um, and and so when Jesus comes to this man's home. There were things that were customary during this time to do for a guest when they arrived in your home. One of them is that you would greet them with a kiss, at the very least a kiss on the hand. Jesus enters Simon's home, and he does not give him a kiss. Um, their feet were dirty because, uh, because of all the walking they did and their feet being exposed, and so it was really commonplace and customary when the guests arrived for their feet to be washed, at the very least by the servant in the home, and that Jesus' feet remained dirty. They were not washed. He did not offer that practice to him. Um, it was also customary to offer uh, a guest, especially a distinguished guest of your home, uh, some inexpensive olive oil to anoint their head with. None of those things happened for Jesus even though he was invited into this man's home. So Jesus is eating at the house of this Pharisee, and in the middle of this meal, 
uh, th- this woman comes in and she crashes the party, all right? And the Bible tells us in Luke 7 that she's a known sinner. She's a woman of ill repute. Um, in other words, she has a reputation in the community, and it's, it's, it's not good. Um, and she walks into the home of, of Simon, and she's weeping. She, 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 she makes her way to Jesus, and she's crying. She falls at his feet. And the tears from her eyes are now dripping onto his feet and mixing with the dirt and, you know, kind of... Uh, the, the dirt's running off, and, and, and she notices that his feet are dirty. I don't think she had this plan because she would have assumed that his feet would have been washed, but they weren't. And as she's weeping and she's crying, those tears are landing, you know, at his feet. And so she undoes her hair, and she begins to wipe his feet off with her hair. She begins to, to kiss them, crying, broken. She pulls out an expensive bottle of perfume, and she breaks the seal, and she pours that out upon his feet. So let's freeze here for a moment, and we're going to, I want you to remember this, and then we're going to come back to this story and talk about it here in a little bit, but keep this story in mind, all right? Um, some of you might realize that when babies are born, they cry a lot. Right? Yeah. You're like, really? Um, but if you, if you sit on this side of the sanctuary, um, closest to the nursery, you know this for sure. You can hear them crying. But no, of course we know that babies cry a lot because it's their only way of communicating. It's their primary way of communicating what their needs are, right? Um, and with all three of our kids when they were babies and they were crying, I really had no clue as to what to do. Um, in fact, a lot of the things having to do with babies, I just didn't really have a clue with, not just the crying part, but the, but the crying, I tried. I tried to figure out. It's, it's a trial and error thing, um, but I, 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 I would do anything, sing a song, um, rock, dance, um, commit a felony, whatever I could do to get the baby to stop crying, that was, I was, I was in. Um, but I, you know, sometimes there are points where nothing, I mean, a lot of us have kids or have raised kids in here. And so you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a point uh, sometimes where anything that you try, nothing seems to work. And, and I've definitely found myself in desperate moments like that as a father, especially by myself. But thank God for Natalie, um, because Nat actually read the books that we were supposed to read. Um, I did not read the, uh, I didn't read the books. I didn't read the Baby Whisperer. She read the Baby Whisperer and became the Baby Whisperer. And, uh, and I just kind of stood to the side and, and marveled. So, um, no, she, she knew. She learned really quickly um, what, the, what the different cries meant. She'd be like, oh, he's tired. And sure enough, he put the baby down and, and he needed a nap. Or, oh, she's hungry. And so I'd go and get Mel a bottle and she'd be all right. Or, oh, he needs a diaper changed and I, I think his dad wants him to change him. <laughs> you know, and that, 
and that's the point where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a super smart guy, but I think I'm getting, I'm getting roped here. Um, so, um, but, you know, the force is strong with the baby whisperer. You don't really argue with that kind of lot, especially when she has that kind of success. So, but she wasn't just good at getting me to change diapers. My wife had this it had this intimate and in, in, in intuitive relationship with every one of our three children. I think I have seen it the most with, uh, with Liam, too, because, again, it's like third kid, you know, 15-and-a-half-year gap. Things are just different. And so she's been calm in ways that I'm just like, I, I, I would run and be like, are you all right? She's like, I got it. I got this. I was like, okay, cool. Um, but... I'll tell you, we, we both hit moments, though, and Melanie loves it when I, she's somewhere else serving the kids, so I can tell this story, but she always loves it when I bring this up, but Mel was super colicky as a baby, and so both Natalie and I, even with the baby whisperer, we had moments where we were like, I don't know what to do. She would just scream and cry. Um, and we could not get her to calm down, and it became really desperate in our household. And I don't know, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's people in here who have experienced this where it starts to turn into Lord of the Flies in your home, and it's just like a matter of survival. And eventually, she figured out that she was lactose intolerant, and that, that solved it all. And I say she figured that out. I offered... I was in the corner um, in a fetal position, <laughs> rocking back and forth, praying that God would deliver the demon from the baby. Is basically probably where I was. Um, no, I didn't. I don't. I didn't do much with that. But Natalie, Natalie did. They figured it out. They got it figured out because that's that relationship with mother and child is an intimate relationship. Um, we've all been in 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 rooms where like a we're in a group of people and a baby gets fussy and, and, and mom is not there. So then it quickly turns into like a, a game of catchphrase where you're passing the buzzer around. Like you take them, take them, take them. No, I got them, you take them. And, that, and you're trying to look for the person who's got the touch, who can calm the situation down, you know? And then mom walks in, the baby hears mom's voice and it's like, boom, done. Um, now your phone's ringing, man. Anybody else gonna get a, Anyone get a call today? Um, yeah, don't answer that. So, um, but that's the relationship that, that is unique with a mother and their child. It's intimate. It's a knowing and being known type of relationship. It's a picture of intimacy. We can talk about intimacy, but until you have witnessed it firsthand, you don't really know it. I can define the word for you. Um, I can explain where the word comes from and how that word is used, but you wouldn't really know what intimacy is. You would know about it, but you wouldn't know it. And God, in his relationship to us, God desires to know us intimately. Probably the best biblical word for intimacy is the word know. It's it's interesting because we talked about this, just we, we brushed on this as we closed our, our series last week on detox. We talked about, um, about how God wants to know us 
and that God knows us intimately. It, it's, uh, it's first used in its context of relationships in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it just simply says this, that Adam knew his wife Eve. And that's, that's from the King James translation. Um, but the Hebrew word for know is the word yada. And the definition for the word yada is to know and to be completely known. So you've got other translations of Scripture, like very commonly in homes, you'll have the New International Version. So if you have an NIV Bible, um, it's going to look a little bit different to you because that word is different. It's put into context of what is happening in that verse. So your Bible probably says something like this in Genesis 4.1. It probably says, Adam lay with his wife Eve. And so you get, you get an idea as to what's happening here, all right? That is our context for the word yada. But before we just kind of like either giggle like, like a junior high kid or brush over this whole word of yada, um, I want to explain, I want to pause on this and, and talk to you about more of what this means. This is a moment between a husband and a wife. It's an intimate connection on every level. To know someone fully and to be fully known, it's a beautiful picture that opens up at the start of Scripture. And there's something to be said for the sacredness of sexual intimacy, that when we first read about sex in the Scripture, that we have this word that isn't you know, that's, that's used to describe intimacy and the fullness of being known. Not just a word that describes pleasure or something that's used for procreation. In fact, there are other Hebrew words that could have been used and words that are later used in Scripture referring to the physical act of sex and even um, referencing specifically procreation. But here in Genesis 4.1, it's about intimacy. It's about connection. One Hebrew scholar calls it the mingling of souls. So you, the mingling of souls, and I love that. You get this, this, this picture. You get this idea of, of what it means to be uh, a soulmate with another person. Um, when I was in college, I had a roommate that sometimes I'm amazed that we've stayed friends um, but we've stayed friends through uh, all this time, and he, one of the things that he loved to do the most was to get into debates with me over um, topics. And the reason why he liked to do that is because he knew how to push my buttons and to get me emotionally reactive to something. And then he would just stand back and go, yay. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm serious. That's, he, he would, I think he lived for that. He just liked to see me get riled up. There's some people in here that are very similar. Um, I won't point them out. Um, and so, <laughs> um, but you no, know, this roommate and I, we would get in this argument, this one subject we would get in arguments about all the time because I grew up as a kid that could be described as like a hopeless romantic. Um, I, um, I, yes, I love superhero movies, and I love big blockbusters and all that. I also love romantic comedies. I don't mind saying that. I'm secure in who I am. 
um, like musicals, all that stuff. Anyway, um, point being, I always kind of ascribe to the idea of um, there is this person out there that I have yet to meet, and she is my princess, and, and uh, um, she is the one that when I was created and she was created, we, God set us on a path to meet one another and to become soulmates, and, and the rest is happily ever after, right? And, and that was my belief process. Even when I, you know, dated different people and things went bad and I had my heart broken and went through pain in relationships, somewhere in the back of my mind, I still believed that that was possible, even though for a time, I wondered if it could be possible for me. But my roommate would be like, no, dude, that is not, that's not the way this works. He would say, any, uh, any man and woman could, could get married and make it work, totally, if they're a follower of Christ. And I'm like, what? And he's like, absolutely, think about it. If, you are, if the two of you are mutually submitted to God, and you're mutually submitted to one another, and you believe in putting the other person's needs before your own, you'll make it work. I'm like, that is the stupidest thing. <laughs> you're an idiot. Um, like, and he's more right. Um, I just, I just want to say than I wanted to admit in the time. Um, there's a lot right about that. Now, it takes all the magic and the whimsy and the romance out of it, and I still, to this day, here's the thing. Did I meet my soulmate? I believe I did. Um, I believe that that was my path. Do I believe that there's one person and only one person out there for everyone? You know, uh, the reason why I choose to kind of maybe lean or concede to my roommate uh, on his opinion in this is because I think it's a dangerous place to believe that we walk this linear line in God's will, and if we make one false move and it changes, our lives are just over with, because that's not the truth. Um, that's not how God's will works, and that's not how his plan unfolds and the story unfolds for our life. Sometimes we walk through chapters close in our lives in ways that are just absolutely devastating to us. Um, but we have this beautiful, amazing, creative God that continues to create new chapters in our story that can take those pieces, and when we think, what happened? And will I ever find love again, or was that it, and it's now done for me? He says, no, I'm not done. I'm not done. So, but for me... Uh, and for Natalie, uh, we, we got to live our, our, our fairy tale. And our fairy tale is not the fairy tale of the, of the movies. It is in some pieces, but it's probably more of what Brene Brown kind of brought up, though, too. And that is over years of time recognizing the fullness of what, it, what love means. And that love is messy. And that love is hard. And that love is a choice. And um, it's not something that we just fall, we might fall into it, but to stay in it takes intention and it requires sacrifice and it requires selflessness. So 
Going back to this word and this usage of this word yada, through the Old Testament, you're going to find over and over again that this same word used to describe God's relationship with us, um, or this, this, this same word is used to describe God's relationship with us. Over and over, yada is the word that is used to describe how God knows you and how he wants to be known by you, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing because that means that the same connection used to describe the relationship between man and wife is also used to describe how God wants to know you. Now, when I think about the relationship and the connection that I have with my wife on a day-in and day-out basis, and, and it, it makes me a little bit embarrassed uh, when I then look at my connection with God and I compare those two. How, how does my connecting with God compare to the way that I connect with my wife? That's an interesting question and one to wrestle with. Um, I brought a couple of props up here. There was... Um, Early on in our marriage, we didn't have very much money. Later on in marriage, we still don't have much money. Um, but early on in marriage, we didn't have much money, and we lived in a rural, small Iowa town. And so, thankfully, there really wasn't a lot to do. So not having a lot of money didn't mean that we really were missing out on that much because you had to be creative to find things to do anyway. Um, but... I, we would go on creative dates, and when it was Valentine's Day, we would think, okay, what are ways that we can do things for each other where we don't have to spend a lot of money? So we would make gifts in that, and one year, um, Nat gave me this uh, memory box, and um, there's an old picture of us on it. I'll, I don't know. I'll hold that up. Um, and then in this box, when she gave it to me, were a whole bunch of slips of paper, and they just have, um, they have different, they have different things that she wrote about uh, our relationship. Like, thank you for being a spiritual leader in our home. Um, thank you for all the sacrifices you've made for our family. Um, yeah, I'm not reading that. Um, so, and... Um, There's, uh, but I've, I've then gone to put other things into this <laughs> box. Um, like I got, I, I, there's cards that she's given to me and there's old, there's other old pictures and stuff. There's like an old one of us, um, me with less facial drag. Um, so anyway, and I add things to this box, although I realized today, because I was going to put her Valentine's card from this year in there and I realized, oh yeah, that's what d gets... That's how I determine what goes in the box or not. This card does not fit in the box, so it didn't make it into the box, so it's fine. Now, this over here is a journal that I received just this last year from you all. Um, early in my relationship with Christ, I did a lot of journaling. And at different seasons of time over my life, I have picked that back up again. And so I have a stack of journals that when I look back on, tell a story and a narrative about my, about my God and what he means to me and, and his faithfulness in my life. Um, I was going to bring those. They're unfortunately in boxes um, that uh, my office from um, 
from Hope Church has never been unpacked. So it, that, that stuff remains in, in boxes and that. But, um, but as I look at those journals and then I think about this box and, and I, I bring those two uh, p- points together to connect them, I realize and I've reflected on the fact that my relationship with Christ is not some sort of a weekend fling. It's not. It's not a casual encounter. It's, it's yada. It's, I know that he knows me better than I know myself. And I have come to know him over the course of many years and through a lot of walking through a lot of different circumstances in life. David uses the word yada about six times to describe how God knows us in Psalm 139. Remember last week we talked a little bit about Psalm 139? In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, this is what David writes. He says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You know, you know, you know, you know. David speaks to God in this very intimate way. It's one of the reasons why I believe that he was referenced as a man after God's own heart. It, it describes the type of relationship, the type of trust that he had in that relationship. I love David because David holds nothing back before a God who already knows it all and knows him. He, he brings it before him, his anger, his sorrow, all that's in between. David just lays his heart bare before the Lord, believing that he can fully and completely trust him, which is what you do in an intimate relationship. God knows how I feel. God knows how I hurt. God knows my thoughts even before um, I have a chance to fully process them myself. And God wants you to know him. I mean, it's crazy that God knows us deeply and intimately, but it's probably even crazier the fact that God invites us to know him in that same manner. God wants his soul to mingle with ours. And for some wild reason, the creator of the universe has offered that invitation to us. He's opened his heart up and he said, I want you to know me more closely, more minutely than you know anyone else. I want you to know my heart. I want you to connect with me on an intimate level that can't be reached in any other way but through vulnerable intimacy. I want our souls to come together for both of us to know each other deeply and wholly. And like when we read that in scripture, we can read that from a context of kind of like, oh, that's poetic. It's beautiful to read. It's kind of like classical literature. And when we read it, I think we're comfortable with reading scripture like that when we view it kind of as poetry. But if somebody were to write that to you in a letter and send that to you, and that, um, that you, I mean, you might have some issues with that, right? 
um, that might bother you and make you feel a little uncomfortable. You would either probably blush or maybe want to get a restraining order or something. I mean, it's, um, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's, it's almost kind of claustrophobic in feel. And if you feel that way, it's okay because many of us have a hard time knowing what to do with intimacy. It's pretty normal. In fact, we do pretty well at, at keeping people at arm's length. But when intimacy hits us right in the face, we, we, some kind, we, we, we sometimes kind of lose it. We're not sure what to do. And that's why it's not surprising that one of the most common responses to intimacy is fear. And the reason why fear comes so into play in a response to intimacy is because it involves allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, to be open, to be seen for who we really are. Many people fear intimacy because they know that pain goes hand in hand with it. It goes hand in hand. Many people have experienced betrayal. They've experienced the crushing blow of somebody or someone um, who has disappointed them, who has uh, abused their authority or their control. They've, they've opened up. They've made themselves vulnerable, and somebody let them down. And when we make ourselves vulnerable to God, we know ultimately that he's going to He's going to find out some things that we are not proud of. I say find out things. He already knows them. But when we open up to God, we suddenly have more of an awareness ourselves. It shines the light on us in ways that we maybe try to hide from him. And God's going to discover the stain. So let's, let's go back to the woman in Luke 7. A woman of ill repute, it says, she knew she had sin in her life. She knew that she was unworthy to touch the Messiah. And yet she was willing to risk whatever reputation she had left to be the party crasher in this instance, to find Jesus and, and to break down and lay her heart out in front of him. We know that we have all fallen short of God's desire for us and that when God looks into our lives, he's going to find things that he does not condone. So it kind of makes sense that many people would be afraid of that kind of vulnerability. But true followers of Christ know ultimately that there's so much more to be gained from that type of intimacy with God because when we know God in that way, we see him present, as we've talked about, present in the middle of our circumstances, in the midst of our pain. We know the one who is faithful, who walks with us through anything that, that, that comes our way. And we learn to trust him. We can only know that through intimacy. Although the New Testament is written in Greek, when Paul um, writes this in Philippians 3.10, he uses the similar 
Hebrew word uh, in describing the desire to know God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I desire to know him and the power of his resurrection. It's the same definition signifying an intimate relationship. And what I find interesting is that if, if we are fans of Jesus instead of followers, a fan has affections. I have a, a lot of things that I have affection for. Most of them are nerdy. Um, but I, uh, you know, as a, as a collector of comics and as a fan of superheroes and that, I have a lot of stuff and I know a lot of knowledge about it because it's my affection. I like it a lot. Um, but there is a big difference between chasing affections and embracing intimacy. A fan chases their affections, but a follower embraces an intimate relationship with God. Now, in the church, we often we fail to embrace that kind of intimacy with Jesus. Instead, it's common for us to create systems that focus more about learning, not unlike Simon and the other Pharisees. Because our, our default is about knowing, not necessarily about intimacy. That is oftentimes true within the church. Think about it. We love Bible studies. We're going to start one. And this is, I, I feel like I, I was going to clarify on the back end. I feel like I'll just say it in the front end. What I'm going to tell you is no way a knock on studying God's word, and I'll explain. But we love our Bible studies, and many of them include workbooks, that include curriculum for working through that particular book. We uh, pastors, as they preach, they 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 love to give handouts so that people can fill in blanks and follow along, and all of that. We build and establish private Christian academies all over the world, ranging from um, grade school all the way to grad school, to study theology, to study God, to to study uh, exegesis, Greek, Hebrew. Um, and we do this even with our kids. In, in, in like kids' church, in, in the back, they're being taught lessons. They're memorizing scripture. Um, when I was first a youth pastor, I, this was not a choice. Uh, it was like just part of my, my thing. There was a team, and uh, now that I was the youth pastor, I needed to coach that team. It was a Bible quiz team. And I don't know if any of you guys did Bible quiz growing up, but Bible quiz is intense. Bible quiz is about memorizing scripture and being fast off of the buzzer. Um, and, that, and not just, I say memorizing scripture. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot more than that. And you would have to see it to totally understand it. But let me just explain to you that um, I just felt stupid. Um, I was the coach, but the kids were incredible, incredible about how they knew God's word backwards and forwards. Now, again, let me be crystal clear here. Studying and learning from God's word is invaluable. Jesus referenced, read, quoted the Old Testament all over the place, which is ample proof that he studied God's word. And he did it with great care and with great diligence. However, we can't expect knowledge to replace intimacy. We can't expect knowledge to replace intimacy, and we often try to. We try to. Knowledge and intimacy are not the same thing. 
And I think we try to substitute them because knowledge is safer. We can be more removed from knowledge. Where intimacy is, is not easy. It is messy. And so it, it becomes easy for us to say things like, well, I, I, I mean, come on, I know about Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus wants to know you. Do you understand? Jesus wants to know you. And that's where Simon the Pharisee uh, kind of found himself. He knew a lot about Jesus and his teachings, and he wanted to learn more. He calls him teacher, which means that that's, that's the lens by which he saw him, and he wanted more information. He wanted more knowledge. But knowledge and relationship, knowledge and intimacy, those are different things. Simon sees this woman and all that the woman does for Jesus, her, her shameful actions to burst into the middle of this, this dinner gathering and then to, just to cry all over the feet of Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 7, verse 39, that he, he quickly judged her in his thoughts and in his, mind, in his mind. And this is what he said in Luke 7, 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. What kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. And he says this to himself. He says this to himself. So Jesus, being Jesus, he reads his thoughts and he calls it out. And I love it. Um, and, and this is what Jesus does in verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? And, I, and I'm just going to pause there because when I was, I've read this story a ton, but I thought about that question that he poses to him. Do you see this woman? I mean, not, not what you see on the surface, but do you really see her? You're seeing one thing, but you don't really know her the way that I do. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. That's the amazing thing about this love that we speak of. We're going to talk in the coming weeks. We're going to go into the season of Lent, and we're going to observe that as a church for the first time. I've never taken a, a group of adults through Lent before, and it's going to be very unique to Canvas as to how we approach that. So if you have a history with it, or if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, I mean, I know what Lent is, but, um, but I think you're talking about something different. Um, you're right, I am. And we're going to be discussing that, and it's all about reflecting upon God's love for us and understanding our desperate need for that love. Because if we think 
And we follow this, this concept that is kind of rampant in our culture right now of, hey, you're okay and I'm okay. We're just, we're okay. Can we just be all okay? There's a danger in that. Now, oftentimes what people are really saying in that is, or wanting to say is, you have value. And I have value. And every one of us have value. And that couldn't be more true. But am I okay? I'm not okay. I'm not okay outside of my relationship with Christ. And this woman and what Jesus points out here is so amazing because we could do nothing to earn and we have done nothing to deserve his love. What we needed was forgiveness. And this woman is offered forgiveness. And because of the forgiveness that she receives from Jesus, she's able to love in a big way because she was greatly forgiven. People saw her brokenness. And Jesus then turns to this woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. So Simon brings Jesus to this meal, but what he really wanted was knowledge. He wanted to keep things at an arm's length. He wanted to keep it shallow. He wasn't interested in an intimate relationship. He made it clear by defining that through the fact that he didn't wash his feet. He didn't offer him a kiss. He didn't offer him oil for his head. But this woman was willing to open up completely and lay her heart bare before the Lord. She made herself vulnerable. So the question as we close today, will you let Jesus know you? Will you let him know you? Will you embrace that close and intimate relationship that he desires to have with you? Because with that intimate relationship, does come forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, when we embrace it, then we can turn that love out to those around us. It's something that followers truly experience. If you desire intimacy with Jesus today, then I want to encourage you to do this. I think sometimes, again, our approach during the day, during our weeks, is, God, I've got this problem. I've got this situation. I need you for this. And, and so we're, we're compelled out, and we're propelled out towards our relationship based upon our need. I encourage you. I remember uh, way back uh, a guy saying, um, in a chapel service. Why don't you sit with God this week and just spend time with him, not because of anything that you need in the moment, but just because you want to just hang with him and be in relation with, relationship with him. Can you put for a moment your needs aside and just say, God, I just want to bring my presence before your presence. I just want us to connect together. I would encourage you to do that. Just be in his presence. Focus on that relationship with him.
And, and if there is something that you ask, say, God, I want to know you in a greater way. I want to know you in a deeper, a more intimate level. And God, I open my heart up to you to be known as well. It's probably the base need that we all have. We know who we are. We know our shortcomings. We know our failures. We know what, what, what is broken and the stains that exist inside of our heart. But we wonder, is there somebody out there who would know all of that, all of it, all of it, and still love me anyway? And there is, and his name is Jesus, and he wants to know you. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your love. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around it. Why? Because we are imperfect. And the relationships that we have and we've experienced have been a mixed bag on this earth. Sometimes we've seen glimpses of what truly is your heart reflected towards us, but uh, unfortunately a lot of us have experienced things that in no way reflect that. And so it's difficult for us to hear these words and, and to have that kind of understanding and comprehension that there would be a God that truly, in spite of, uh, of our shortcomings, in spite of our failure, in spite of our sin, would want to know us fully and that he would open himself up to be known as well. That's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. God, I pray that we would find a place and that we would find space with you this week where we would be willing, against our fear and, and against the, uh, the anxiety of being exposed, that we would be willing to just come through the doors and lay at your feet and cry if we need to cry or get angry if we need to get angry, but lay our heart bare before you as the woman did with Jesus, as David did before God in the Psalms, holding nothing back. And in that, God, you would meet us right where we are and we would continue to take step by step we would continue to take those moments and see ourselves grow closer to knowing you and being known by you. We love you today, Jesus. Thank you that you are our Savior. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.